This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Keys to Living an Abundant Life. In the first half, Cheryl A. Esplin and Sharon G. Samuelson share their addresses, The Abundant Life, and Beware the Dragons. Then in the second half, Thomas H. Fletcher speaks on Harvey and Howard, Lessons from Two Grandfathers. I came to BYU from a small high school. There were less than 60 of us in our graduating class. I hadn't traveled much. Living on a farm meant there was always work to be done, cows to milk and water to change, and we didn't get very far from home. Coming to BYU was quite an exciting adventure for me. I admit I came a little starry-eyed with my head full of dreams as I looked forward to more independence, new friends, and new opportunities to prepare for my future. That's probably why I was a little disappointed when the first boy to ask me out on a date was a boy from my high school. He was also the second one to ask me out, and the third, and the fourth. I became concerned that this hometown boy would begin thinking there was more to our relationship than I thought there was, and I determined that I needed to talk to him about it. One night, as he took me home from a date, I looked for just the right opportunity. As he took me to the door, and before I could say anything, he said, I was just wondering if you would like to go steady with me. It had happened just like I was afraid it would. And I quickly responded, Oh no, I can't do that. I didn't come here to BYU to do that. I came here to date, meet lots of guys, have fun, meet lots of people. And as I went on and on, his eyes got wide. And then finally, when I paused to take a breath, he asked, What did you think I just asked you? A little puzzled, I responded, You asked me if I would like to go steady with you. He shook his head and said, No, I ask if you would like to go study with me. S-T-U-D-Y, study. Needless to say, he never asked me out again. And I offer this advice. If anyone asks you to go study or steady, ask them to spell it. Recently, I was reading in the book of John, and I paused to ponder the Savior's words when he said, I am come that they, meaning you and me, might have life, and that they, you and me, might have it more abundantly. Everything the Savior did and said was for the benefit of humankind. His atonement, His example, His teachings, everything was to help us not only have a more abundant life on earth, but to attain the most abundant of all life, even eternal life. Today I would like to emphasize three principles the Savior taught that will lead us to live a more abundant life. One foundational principle is seeking light and truth. The Savior blesses those who are seeking diligently to learn wisdom and find truth. President James E. Faust said, Opportunities for the abundant life increase as we pursue the quest for truth and knowledge. President David O. McKay 
a great proponent of learning and education, said it this way, To feel one's faculties unfolding and truth expanding the soul is one of life's sublimest experiences. Patricia, a graduate of BYU, described such an experience in a letter to Elder Merrill J. Bateman when he served as president of this university. Patricia told of sitting in a physics class where they were discussing fiber optics and how light travels perfectly through strands of plastic without losing energy. As the lecture proceeded, Patricia realized that all things point to Christ. Christ has all power and never loses energy as He influences our lives. She said, I sat in awe at the understanding that came to me. Not a physical understanding, but a spiritual understanding. A spiritual enlightenment filled my soul. I came out of the lecture on a spiritual high." I don't believe that experiences like Patricia's are uncommon here at BYU. In his inaugural address, President Worthen reaffirmed the mission of Brigham Young University to assist individuals in their quest for perfection and eternal life by providing a period of intensive learning that includes not just the arts, letters, and sciences, but also the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a blessed opportunity to attend a university where one can learn both secular and spiritual truths simultaneously, and not one at the expense of the other. In speaking about the uniqueness that underlies BYU, President Spencer W. Kimball said, This university shares with other universities the hope and the labor involved in rolling back the frontiers of knowledge. But we also know that through divine revelation there are yet many great and important things to be given to mankind which will have an intellectual and spiritual impact far beyond what mere men can imagine. He continued, Thus, at this university, among faculty, students, and administration, there is and there must be an excitement and an expectation about the very nature and future of knowledge. The search for knowledge, light, and truth is one of the reasons we are on earth. It is a lifelong pursuit that requires great effort and diligence on our part, whether by study or by faith. Keith W. Wilcox, a member of the Church and a prominent architect, shared an experience from his university years that illustrates this truth. As part of his thesis, while completing his Master of Architecture degree at the University of Oregon, his professor asked him to find one word or phrase that described the spirit of his church, then design a church building that would demonstrate that word or phrase. Keith told his professor that he felt a single word or phrase could not be found to describe the spirit of his church. His professor disagreed and said he felt what was missing from Keith's thesis was a simple description of the spirit of his church and a design that would express it architecturally. 
After the meeting with his professor, Keith knew he was up against a challenge that could keep him from entering his chosen professional field. He pondered his dilemma and then decided to interview his Church leaders and other members of his ward. He received many suggestions, including faith, eternal progression, revelation, the Book of Mormon, priesthood, prophets and apostles. But he couldn't think of a satisfactory way to express any of these gospel principles architecturally. Pressure mounted as he wrestled with this problem. Living costs for his family were a concern with a delay in getting his degree. One night, as he pondered his problem, he realized he hadn't taken the challenge directly to Heavenly Father. He had prayed for guidance and sought advice from priesthood leaders, but he hadn't sought the Lord specifically for help in finding the word or phrase he needed. Humility filled his entire being. He had done all in his power to find an answer but had not been able to find a solution on his own. He needed direct help. Keith found a quiet place to pray, then knelt and poured out his heart to his Heavenly Father. As he concluded his prayer, a word flashed into his mind, enlightenment. Then the phrase light and enlightenment followed. Joy swept through him. His prayer had been answered. He thought of how light and truth have been restored in our day, how prophets, seers, and revelators continue to offer light and truth, how missionary efforts bring enlightenment to all who will listen, how temples glow with spiritual light and all who enter are taught eternal truths and enlightened. Suddenly, it was easy to envision a meaningful architectural design of one of our Church buildings. He decided to build a building that would allow light to penetrate from the heavens all day long and that would radiate light heavenward each evening. The resubmission of his thesis that now illustrated the phrase light and enlightenment was accepted. His professors expressed great interest in both the history and the description of the spirit of our Church. Keith said, I am grateful to our Father in Heaven for the insight and inspiration I received on that occasion. The deep meaning and spiritual significance of this experience have been a wonderful and continued blessing to me since that day. Keith went on to design many significant buildings and was part of the design team for the Washington, D.C. Temple and the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah. In his recent General Conference talk about receiving a testimony of light and truth, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf said, The everlasting and almighty God will speak to those who approach Him with a sincere heart and real intent. He will speak to them in dreams, visions, thoughts, and feelings. He will speak in a way that is unmistakable and that transcends human experience. He will give them divine direction and answers for their personal lives. God cares about you. He will listen and He will answer your personal questions. The answers to your prayers will come in His own way and His own time, and therefore you need to learn to listen to His voice." A second principle of living the abundant life is revealed in Isaiah's words. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Elder Joseph B. Worthland echoed this thought when he said, Our search for the abundant life is cloaked not only in the robes of this mortal clay. Its true end can only be comprehended from the perspective of the eternities that stretch infinitely before us. Elder Worthland teaches us that an eternal perspective is important in our quest for the abundant life. In this journey of life, it is important for us to understand God's plan. Change, challenges, trials, and temptations are temporary and prepare us for eternal life. In a speech James A. Cullimore gave at BYU, he related an experience once told by religious writer Harley M. Rosenberger about a man who was walking across the United States on foot from California to New York. When the man had reached the halfway point, reporters interviewed him and asked him about the experience. One reporter asked, What has been your most difficult experience? Rosenberger describes the man's response. The traveler thought long. Through his mind went the toilsome climb over the mountain passes, hot, dry stretches of desert, sun, wind. Then he said quietly, I guess my greatest problem was that the sand kept getting into my shoes. Sand in his shoes, not some great crisis he had faced, not some danger that had almost taken his life, but sand, sand that wore blisters on the soles of his feet, sand that ground its way between the pores of his skin and irritated constantly, that made every step an agony. Sand in his shoes. Now there was one hint that the hiker suggested when the sand got into his shoes. He had to stop and dump the sand from them. In our journey in life, we too are troubled with sand in our shoes, sand in the form of change, challenges, trials, and temptations. We can either let these things stop us short of our goal, or we can find ways to dump the sand from our shoes and continue our journey. My husband Max and I were married in the fall, and the next spring we both graduated from BYU. During this time, the military draft was in force, and Max had received a letter indicating that he would be drafted into the military service upon graduation. During Max's two years in the service, I taught school near my hometown so that I could be near my family. After his service, Max worked with his family ranching operation for a year. Then we decided he should come back to BYU to get more education. Finances were tight, and I was expecting our first baby, but we were able to find a tiny basement apartment that fit our budget, and he started school. Shortly after, Max was called to be the young men president. He was a little concerned because his studies were rigorous and took a lot of time, but he accepted the calling. One day, my husband came home quite devastated. He had received a C on his first test in a class that was critical to his major. He had studied hard, and now he began to doubt his ability to compete in that major. His shoes were filling with the sand of discouragement and doubt. 
For several days, he couldn't eat or sleep as he worried about what to do. He considered giving up and going back to life on the ranch to do what he knew best and what he was comfortable with. After a lot of prayer and soul-searching, he decided to continue with his education and graduated with honors. In hindsight, the C on a test was such a little thing. But often it is the little things, the little grains of sand that distract us and keep us from seeing with an eternal perspective. I will always be grateful that my husband was willing to dump the sand from his shoes and move on. Because he was willing to pay the price and move beyond his comfort zone, many doors of opportunity were opened to him. Throughout his life, he has used his skills and knowledge not only to bless our family, but many others as well. Each new day brings with it the opportunity to evaluate where we are in terms of where we are going. Wherever we are on our journey, the Savior has made it possible through His redeeming and enabling power for us to dump the sand from our shoes. It's up to us to apply these powers in our life and to continue our journey strengthened with hope and faith. Heavenly Father and our Savior want you to succeed. President Thomas S. Monson expressed his confidence in your ability to do so when he said, This is your world. The future is in your hands. The outcome is up to you. A third principle of living an abundant life is feeling and expressing gratitude. The Lord promised, And he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious, and the things of this earth shall be added unto him, even an hundredfold, yea, more. In the January Ensign, a young woman named Elizabeth Stitt shared an experience she had learning about the power of gratitude. Her story was inspiring to me not only because I know Elizabeth personally, but because it was a message I needed as well. She told of having the opportunity to do research for her undergraduate degree in the same city where she had a few months previously served a mission. As she traveled each day throughout the city to do her project, Heavenly Father blessed her in many ways. He guided her path and protected her. He gave her opportunities to share the gospel, and He multiplied her time so that she could do her project and also visit many of the people she had known and loved as a full-time missionary. She felt so blessed that every morning and night she poured out her soul in gratitude to her Father in Heaven for the chance to be there. Throughout the day, she prayed in her heart, thanking Him when her plans went smoothly. And when they didn't go smoothly, she thanked Him, because it usually ended up being better anyway. One day, as she sat pondering her experiences, she wondered why Heavenly Father was helping her so much. This thought came clearly to her mind. It is because you are being grateful. Elizabeth said, That day I learned that sometimes gratitude precedes the blessings. The more grateful I was, the more I could recognize the blessings I received and appreciate the lessons I learned from the difficulties. 
and the more I recognized the blessings and lessons, the more I had to be grateful for. End quote. It's interesting how gratitude works. We think we are giving back to the Lord by being grateful, but instead the Lord blesses us still more for being grateful. We are so greatly blessed, and most of us have done very little to merit the many blessings given us. Every time I read chapters 6 and 7 in Deuteronomy, I reflect on how indebted I am to the Lord and to all those who have gone before and sacrificed so much. After 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites came to a mountaintop overlooking the land of promise. As Moses prepared them to enter this land without him, he spoke to them as a dying father speaks to his children. He told them what awaited them. The Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. And when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord. This is every bit as much a message to modern-day Israel, you and me. Too often, when we inherit or get things that others have worked and sacrificed so hard for, we don't appreciate them. Occasionally, we're not as grateful. We might even feel entitled, expecting things to just be handed to us for the taking. Joseph Smith and the early saints gave up all they had, sometimes several times, as they were driven from place to place for the gospel. Many sacrificed their very lives. We need to be grateful not only for those who went before and sacrificed so much, but especially grateful to God, from whom comes every good thing. Now is our time to contribute, our time to build, our time to dig, our time to plant. President Gordon B. Hinckley explained the importance of each of our contributions. We must ever keep before us, he said, the big picture while not neglecting the details. That large picture, he said, is a portrayal of the whole broad mission of the Church but it is painted one brushstroke at a time through the lives of all members. Each of us, therefore, is important. Each is a brushstroke, as it were, on the mural of this vast panorama of the kingdom of God. We have talked about having the abundant life through seeking light, truth, and knowledge, through looking through the lens of an eternal perspective and through feeling and expressing gratitude. The abundant life can be ours as we take advantage of these and so many other opportunities that are available to us in this day. I end with where I started. May we always remember that our Savior came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. I testify that He is the one that makes the abundant life possible. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Cheryl A. Esplin. And now we'll hear from Sharon G. Samuelson for her address, Beware the Dragons. We are all fascinated by stories about the unknown and the dangers it may hold. Men and women throughout history have sought, often at peril to their lives, to explore mysterious and strange lands and places of which they had little or no information. These individuals would marvel at the use of a GPS, Google Earth, and MapQuest today. Historically, cartographers used their skills and limited knowledge to produce maps of their time period. These maps were not necessarily very accurate, but were archaic prototypes of those we use today. Found among myths and legends are stories of medieval European mapmakers placing the phrase, Here be dragons, on the edges or other locations of their maps to indicate unknown, strange, and or dangerous areas. In other words, the end of the known world. If they did not know, and it was beyond their geographical knowledge, they put the warning, Here be dragons. Dragons, sea serpents, and other mythical and frightening creatures were placed on later maps to warn people of areas to be avoided or entered into at their own risk. Sometimes the phrase might be included and written in Latin or English. Why most often dragons? A dragon is a fearsome creature that appears in folklore in most countries. Haven't you all grown up with the stories of the brave and courageous knights fighting dragons to save the hapless princesses or dragons prowling the earth destroying villages and cities? I would surmise that some of your childhood nightmares included fire-breathing dragons chasing you through dense forests. Even though you have met timid, reluctant, and huggable dragons such as Puff in children's literature and movies, I think the fearful ones are those you probably remember the most and would want to give a wide berth to at all costs. Today you are making decisions and choosing courses to take on the many maps and pathways presented to you. We read in the scriptures that Isaiah declared, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Our society seems to exemplify what is described in this scripture. The paths your lives take today have areas which could be marked by the phrase, Here be dragons, as a warning that you should and must avoid them. A firm testimony of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so necessary to maintain the proper perspectives and withstand the buffetings of the adversary which can and often will bombard you from all directions. What are some of the dragons that can have harmful effects if you venture into their territories of influence? The early explorers often lacked the insight and knowledge about what they would find in the areas marked by dragons. But you young people have knowledge they didn't. You are warned by loved ones as well as prophets and other leaders concerning what may await you in these lairs. May I just mention some dragons I believe are tempting forces of destruction for each of you. The Internet, social, and other media can be dragons if they are not used properly. Speaking to a group of BYU-Hawaii students, Elder M. Russell Ballard gave this warning. Now, some of these tools, like any tool in an unpracticed or undisciplined hand, can be dangerous. 
The Internet can be used to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and can just as easily be used to market the filth and sleaze of pornography. Computer applications like iTunes can be used to download uplifting and stirring music or the worst kind of antisocial lyrics full of profanity. Social networks on the web can be used to expand healthy friendships as easily as they can be used by predators trying to trap the unwary. There, that is no different from how people choose to use television or movies or even a library. Satan is always quick to exploit the negative power of new inventions, to spoil and degrade, and to neutralize any effect for good. Make sure that the choices you make in the use of new media are choices that expand your mind, increase your opportunities, and feed your soul. You live in a world of technology and cannot avoid it with all the laptops, iPhones, iPads, iPods, and so forth that you find essential in your lives. I had a friend recently text me that she had just acquired an iPhone and hoped she could figure out how to use it. I sent her this picture taken of three of our grandchildren playing children's games on their parents' iPhones and iPad. I sent her the message that if these youngsters can do it, you can too. Now when our grandchildren come to visit us and after we share hellos, hugs, and kisses, they inevitably ask, may I use your iPhone? This is not only our world today, but it is also a glimpse into the future, where there will be inventions you cannot now envision. How will you use technology to bless your lives and also avoid the dragons it can represent? That is for you to decide. There is also the dragon of immorality. President Thomas S. Monson once stated that, You live in a world where moral values have, in great measure, been tossed aside, where sin is flagrantly on display, and where temptations to stray from the straight and narrow path surround you. Many are the voices telling you that you are far too provincial or that there is something wrong with you if you still believe there is such a thing as immoral behavior. The teachings and admonitions you have received up to this point in your lives are very clear on the importance of acceptable behavior in this area. Beware of being tempted into a dragon's lair in this area of your life. In our culture today, it seems that the traits of honesty and integrity are often lacking or absent in individuals, governments, politics, businesses, and even athletics. Unfortunately, honor, trustworthiness, and incorruptibility that take a back seat to winning and aspirations of high position and or wealth. You have the choice to be honest and ethical or not. Remember the thought. Here be dragons when you enter the realm where choices can lead to a path of dishonesty and lack of integrity. You have made covenants with your Heavenly Father to be honest. President James E. Faust once taught that. Honesty is a principle, and we have our moral agency to determine how we will apply this principle. We have the agency to make choices, but ultimately we will be accountable for each choice we make. We may deceive others, but there is one we will never deceive. From the Book of Mormon we learn, The keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. And there is none other way save it be by the gate, for he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. My dear friends, be examples of honesty and integrity wherever and in whatever you do.
Brigham Young students are known for being examples of these attributes. Once when my husband had an important decision to make concerning a change in his professional path, he sought the advice of an individual he admired and respected concerning the matter. The counsel received was very short and concise. It was that, at all costs, he should protect his integrity. Once lost, your integrity and reputation for honesty are very difficult to regain. Steer clear of the dragons that would take them from you. You are blessed to have the teachings of the gospel to help you shy away from the areas where dangers and forces of evil can enter and put you in peril of losing your faith and testimonies. Sometimes you may think that you can get close to a dragon and escape in time because you are strong enough to fight him when necessary and can easily ignore any temptation he may place before you. Your curiosity and questions about the unknown may lead you to say to yourself, I can choose when to stop and turn around. I know I can. Do not be fooled. The adversary is deceptive and will seek to ensnare you with such thoughts. There is the oft-told story of three men who applied for the job of driving the coaches for a transportation company. The successful applicant would be driving over high and dangerous and precipitous mountain roads. Asked how well he could drive, the first one replied, I am a good, experienced driver. I can drive so close to the edge of the precipice that the wide metal tire of the vehicle will skirt the edge and never go off. That is good driving, said the employer. The second man boasted, Oh, I can do better than that. I can drive so accurately that the tire of the vehicle will lap over half of the tire on the edge of the precipice and the other half in the air over the edge. The employer wondered what the third man could offer and was surprised and pleased to hear. Well, sir, I can keep just as far away from the edge as possible. It is needless to say which of the men got the job. You should be like the third driver. Just as he wisely chose to avoid danger, you should too. Hold on to the iron rod, the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is your only way to have sure footings as you make your way on the roadways of life. Releasing your firm grip on it will surely put you in danger of being entangled in the river of water, the mist of darkness, or the great and spacious building as described by Lehi and Nephi. Their dragons, which were not too different from yours in this century, included the temptations of the adversary and the pride, wisdom, and vain imaginations of the world. Do not be fooled and lured by the dragons that will confront you as you make choices and decisions each day. It can be too easy to fall over the edge if you are not diligent in safely shunning it. If you find that you have indeed fallen over the edge or have become burned by the fires of a dragon, you are blessed with the knowledge that your Savior has given you his gift of the Atonement. It is a message of love, hope, and mercy. He has provided a way for you to overcome any sins or their consequences. If you have entered an area where you were warned there were dragons, you do have a way to find the correct path out, and that is God's plan of salvation, which includes repentance and forgiveness. His love for each of you is boundless and provides a way for you to return to Him. I have a testimony of the significance of the Atonement and know that the Lord loves each and every one of you. He desires that you remain unwavering and firm in your testimonies of Him 
and steadfast and immovable in your choices and behavior. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Keys to Living an Abundant Life. We've just heard from Sharon G. Samuelson. After the break, we'll return with Thomas H. Fletcher for Harvey and Howard, Lessons from Two Grandfathers. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Keys to Living an Abundant Life. Next is Thomas H. Fletcher, a BYU professor and associate chair of the Department of Chemical Engineering at the time of this address, titled Harvey and Howard, Lessons from Two Grandfathers. So one of my grandfathers is Harvey Fletcher. He became very famous in the field of physics and acoustics, and a building was named after him at BYU. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was born in Provo in 1884. As a point of reference, the Brigham Young Academy was started in 1875. Harvey attended the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple in 1893 when he was nine. The Salt Lake Temple was dedicated by Wilford Woodruff. Harvey was born into a humble family, fifth of eleven children. He and his family were great fishermen and would take a covered wagon to the Strawberry Valley to catch barrels full of fish. Utah was a very primitive place, and Harvey loved the outdoors. His first experience with physics was to sit on top of what is now Y Mountain, view the puff of steam from the train locomotive, and time the arrival of the sound of the whistle. Lesson number one. When Harvey was in the primary, he delivered a short speech from the pulpit of the Provo Tabernacle. Brother Carl G. Mazur was in attendance, and before Harvey could sit down, Brother Mazur put his hand on Harvey's head and said, quote, This boy will go a long way in the Church and among the leaders of men. Someday this boy will be a great man. Close quote. The boys his age teased Harvey about being a great man. A few years later, as president of his Aaronic Priesthood Quorum, the bishop asked young Harvey to stand up and give a speech to the quorum. Harvey said that he was dumbfounded and stood nervously on one foot and then on the other and then blurted out, quote, I would rather be good than great, unquote, and then sat down. About 80 years later, he retold this story to the College of Engineering at BYU in the Dion Concert Hall. Harvey mused, quote, Now that I think about it, that wasn't such a bad speech after all, close quote. On Harvey's gravestone, the following message was engraved, He was both good and great. So what is the lesson here? To me, the lesson is that it is most important to be good. Good here means to be a follower of the Savior Jesus Christ and to follow his teachings as revealed in the scriptures and through modern-day prophets. In part, this is the message of the prophet Jacob in the Book of Mormon. Before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God, and after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them. And ye will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, and to feed the hungry, 
to liberate the captive and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. Lesson number two. As a young man, Harvey worked in the grocery business and saved enough money to enter the Brigham Young Academy in the fall of 1900. There were two courses of study, commercial and normal. Harvey entered the normal curriculum because it was less expensive. He says they entered the academy mainly because his friends were there. He breezed through the mathematics classes, feeling almost like he had studied them before. One of the other classes that he took was physics. He said that he understood the subject by just sitting in the class and listening to the teacher and plying him with questions, but did not do any of the assigned work. In particular, he did not keep a laboratory journal. As a result, he obtained an F grade. I'm going to quote from his autobiography. Quote, it was the first and only grade failure that I ever received. This jolted my pride, and I think from then on I took my education seriously. I repeated the course the next year, obtained the highest grade in the class, A+, and was given my first paid job in the school as an assistant in the laboratory. During the following three years, I taught physics and mathematics courses while carrying the regular college courses. At the end of these three years, I graduated with a B.S. degree. The next year, I was a full-time teacher at a salary of $750 a year. Close quote. By the way, there were only six students in the graduating class of 1907. Harvey ended up becoming president of the American Physics Society later in life and was the first LDS scientist elected to the, American, to the American Academy of Science in 1935. So what is the lesson here? Perhaps it is to do all of the homework in school. Perhaps it is to do your best the first time or you will have to do it over. I think that the real message is that you should do something that you really want to do no matter how hard it is. Don't be discouraged if it does not work out the way that you wanted at first. Keep trying with your best effort. Bishop Victor L. Brown said the following, At whatever level our children complete their formal schooling, they should have learned how important excellence is in all they do. There is always room at the top in any enterprise, and it is always crowded at the bottom. It doesn't matter what the field of endeavor plumber, doctor, teacher, lawyer, farmer, carpenter, whatever, if our children learn early in their lives that they should do their very best, they will be eminently better prepared for the responsibilities of life. We should teach our children the importance of schooling as a help in discovering how to think and to learn. They need to know and we need to be reminded that schooling is merely the formal part of education. Education should never stop, but should be a continuing activity throughout life. Lesson number three. Harvey went to the University of Chicago in 1908 and earned a Ph.D. in 1911 under the direction of Robert Millikan, measuring the charge on an electron. Harvey returned to BYU to teach physics, but received an offer to become a researcher at Western Electric in New York City which was the premier physics lab in the country. This lab became the main research lab for AT&T. After several years of persistence from Western Electric, Harvey asked President Brimhall for permission to go to Western Electric. 
BYU was struggling for prestigious faculty, and President Brimhall told Harvey not to go. However, soon after that, President Joseph F. Smith attended a board meeting at BYU, and Harvey asked President Smith the same question. After listening to Harvey's story, President Smith sat quietly in a thoughtful mood for a few minutes and then said, quote, Yes, I want you to go and take this position, but promise this, that you will keep your testimony strong and keep up your church activities. If you do so, you can do more good for the church in New York City than you could do here at the BYU at the present time, and you will be successful in your work. We need more Mormon boys to go out into the world of business and scientific research to represent our ideal of living. Close quote. Harvey took his small family to New York City in 1916 and stayed there until he retired. He served first as president of the Manhattan branch for 10 years and then in the district presidency, stake presidency, and high council for 35 years. He was an emissary for the church and the scientific world. He would go around the world giving lectures about science and religion. I have met many people in science that seem to ignore God because they cannot prove that he exists. There is no logical argument that can persuade someone that the Church is true. The only way to know of the existence of God is to have a personal revelation through the Holy Ghost, as explained in Moroni chapter 10, verse 5, and by the power of the Holy Ghost you may know the truth of all things. Now let me switch to talk about my other grandfather. His name is Howard Tonks. He was never famous. He was born in Morgan, Utah in 1895. While Howard was still a child, his family moved to Victor, Idaho, and started a dairy and sheep farm. Victor is a small town on the Idaho side of the Teton Mountains near Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Victor is where the train turned around because the trains could not make it over the pass to Jackson. Needless to say, in the early 1900s, Victor was a very small place, even compared to Provo. Howard was the eighth of eleven children. His father raised sheep and dairy cows. So what lessons did I learn from Howard, a person in such a small town raised on a farm? Lesson number four, Howard Tonks was called to serve a mission to Australia in November 17, 1916, by President Joseph F. Smith. It is interesting to me that this was the same year that President Smith told Harvey Fletcher to go to work in New York City. Howard left his home in Victor, Idaho on December 30, 1916, by train and reported at the office of the First Presidency in Salt Lake City on January 3, 1917, and boarded a steamer in San Francisco on January 31, 1917, bound for Hawaii. Pongo Pongo, Samoa, and finally Sydney, Australia. This was during World War I, and he saw some German battleships and merchant ships being held by the United States in Pongo Pongo. He finally arrived in Sydney on February 21, 1917, a three-week voyage. Howard kept a brief journal of his mission experiences, which is cherished by the family. Howard served in Melbourne and Perth. This was wartime, and many young men his age were being sent to Europe to fight in the trenches of World War I. He watched as thousands of Australian men were loaded on the ships to go to war. At first, Howard was very lonely and a little discouraged. However, 
He learned to love the Australian and Maori people, and they learned to love him as he brought them the truths of the gospel. Howard had to stay in Australia a little longer than the average missionary because of the war. There was a genuine concern for ships traveling the oceans due to submarine danger. The armistice for World War I was signed in November of 1918. Most of the ships were used to bring troops home from overseas, so Howard served until March 1920, a little over three years from when he began his mission. On my first trip to Australia to attend a scientific conference, I was able to read copies of some of Howard's letters to former missionary companions still serving in Australia and New Zealand. These letters gave me a love for my grandfather, as well as a love for my brothers and sisters in Australia. So what is the lesson or lessons learned from Howard Tonks's mission experiences? First and foremost was that he was a great example of missionary service. This helped me to have a determination to serve a mission. I learned that missions could be hard and that people are not always accepting of your beliefs. I also learned that when serving the Savior in a calling, you serve as hard as you can and do not worry about how long you serve in that calling. I had the privilege of serving in Ecuador Quito mission and at the end wished that I could have served three years instead of two. Lesson number five, I have to mention how Harvey and Howard met the girls that they were going to marry. Harvey was attending a state conference meeting in the Provo Tabernacle and getting drowsy in the balcony. All of a sudden, a rose came floating down and hit him in the head. He turned around and three girls were giggling. One had a red face, so he knew the culprit, Lorena Chipman. After the meeting, he went up to her and asked if he could take her to the dance. She accepted. When he arrived to take her to the dance, all three girls were dressed up and ready to go. So he took all three. (laughs) He married the girl that hit him with the rose. Now I am not advocating throwing roses at cute guys. (laughs) Harvey was good friends with his two sisters-in-law. One of these sisters married Carl Irene. Carl Irene died early, and so did Harvey's wife, Lorena. Harvey married his sister-in-law, Fern, when he was 85 and she was 80, and they were married for 12 years. So in the end, Harvey married two of those three giggling girls from the Provo Tabernacle. (laughs) My grandmother, Furl Bagley, was born in Charleston, Utah. Charleston is the small town at the far end of Deer Creek where you turn to go to Midway. She was the 10th of 11 children. Her family decided to move to Victor, Idaho when she was young. Her mother was ill, and they left the mother in Salt Lake City to recover. However, her mother died when Furl was four years old. Furl's dad could not take care of a farm and 11 kids by himself, so Furl was put in a foster home with a German couple. This couple raised Furl in Victor until she left to go to Sugar City to high school. Howard met Furl in a very interesting way. Furl was in front of the church on a Sunday morning and noticed that a small child had fallen and scraped a knee. Furl reached her first, picked her up, and loved her. Howard was a young returned missionary with black curly hair, a beautiful smile, and a twinkle in his eye. He said to himself, quote, That girl is going to be my wife, unquote. So what is the lesson here? I don't think the lesson to be learned here is to fall in love at first sight with just any person that catches your attention. 
Um, however, I do think that the lesson is that when you do fall in love, make the commitment 100%. Both Howard and Harvey were sealed to their spouse in the temple of God, and they were very devoted husbands. If you are still looking for a spouse, pray that the Lord will guide you and let you know when it is right. If you have made a marriage covenant already to someone with whom you fell in love, stay in love and honor your covenant. Lesson number six. Perhaps the biggest lesson that I learned from Harvey Fletcher was to be personable to all people. Everywhere he went, he tried to be friendly to people, even though he was widely recognized in the fields of acoustics, physics, and science. He was always known as Uncle Harvey to his associates. He never sought recognition, or at least never tried to give the impression that he was better than someone else. He always tried to be happy. Even in his later years, when he uh, was slowed by a body getting older, he never complained about aches and pains. People at church would come up to him when he was in his 90s and say, Uncle Harvey, how are you doing today? He would smile, shuffle his feet, and respond, quote, I can still dance, unquote. <laughs> what a beautiful example to me of having a positive attitude and treating other people with respect. Lesson number seven, the biggest lesson that I have learned from Howard Tonks is to be humble and to be close to Jesus Christ. Howard worked hard on the sheep ranch and dairy farm. The climate in Victor, Idaho, is harsh, yet animals still have to be fed and cared for every day. Despite the hard, rugged work, Howard remained faithful to the Lord his whole life. He served on the high council in the Driggs Stake for close to 25 years. The stake president wanted Howard as a counselor, but there was no telephone line to Howard's farm. Serving on the high council involved traveling long distances, sometimes in heavy snow, using a team of horses and a sleigh. The travel over the pass to Jackson in the winter was especially difficult. Despite having little formal education, Howard was a student of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He loved the scriptures. He would often stand up in a Sunday school class or priesthood meeting and give insight or correction on a gospel topic. He had a quiet reverence about him, and it was inspiring to me to be closer to the Lord. Howard developed Parkinson's disease in his old age. He was struck by lightning, actually, three times while working on the farm in Victor, which may have contributed to this disease. Most of my personal recollections of him are as an older man suffering from Parkinson's disease. He still had the twinkle in his eye, but the black curly hair was thinned and gray. Whenever we spoke, he was always interested in me and always cheerful. I never heard him complain about anything. He was always gentle and kind and seemed to be a very spiritual person. What a great example of trying to be like Jesus. So these are my two grandfathers, Howard and Harvey. I hope that these stories were inspiring to you. They certainly are to me. Let me summarize the lessons learned from these stories. Number one, be both good and great. Number two, do your best in school and at work. Number three, stay true to your testimony. Number four, serve faithfully in callings. Number five, be devoted to your spouse. Number six, have a positive attitude. I can still dance. And number seven, be humble and try to be like Jesus. 
I am sure that there are unique stories from your grandparents that are equally inspiring. Perhaps one of the messages today is to learn from our family histories. Both Howard and Harvey were born in large families in small towns. One became an internationally renowned scientist, bearing his testimony to large numbers of people throughout his life working in New York City. The other quietly served a mission, raised a family, worked hard on the farm in Victor, Idaho, and served the Lord whenever called with all of his heart. Perhaps in the eyes of the world, one was great and one was relatively obscure. However, in the eyes of the Lord, I think that both were good. Both were valiant servants of our Lord Jesus Christ throughout their life. In the end, when we come before the Savior, the words that I would most like to hear would be, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It is my prayer that we can all strive to be great at what we do, but good at who we are. I bear testimony that Jesus Christ lives and that he loves us enough to give us his restored church and his priesthood. I bear witness that he sees what is in our heart and always invites us to be a little better. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Keys to Living an Abundant Life, with thoughts from Cheryl A. Esplin, Sharon G. Samuelson, and Thomas H. Fletcher. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.